Jesus. These are full-on, very confronting, very powerful words. Um, and we've sort of been asking ourselves the question, well, what would it be like to get a letter to this church from Jesus? What would he say? What would he say to us as a group of people? Would he, would he say, you know, Catalyst Church, I love your heart. I love your spirit, your great worshippers. You're passionate for me. I love the work that you do. You know, you're devoted to me. Or would he find fault? Would he find some areas in our life where he would want to challenge us, um, exhort us to make changes? That's really the question we've been asking. And um, we've been looking at three churches so far. We've looked at Ephesus and Smyrna, and now we're going to look at the church at Pergamon. And um, this is the third of the churches, obviously. And this is, a, this is a, a letter to a church that you wouldn't want to receive. If you were the pastor going to the mailbox, this is the letter that you wouldn't want to get. Because this is not something that Jesus finds very pleasing about this church. So we've looked at the first church, Ephesus, and it was in great danger because they had lost their first love. They were going through the motions, they were going to church every week, but in the midst of all that, their love for God and their love for one another had waned. They really weren't passionate anymore. They weren't sold out in their faith, and Jesus found that really un untenable. In his mind, that wasn't on. We have to be passionate people for God. We have to live this life of faith with great exuberance. And that was the, like a first love. When you first get married, when you first fall in love, there's that overwhelming sense of, of, of being with your partner. And Jesus was sort of saying, you've lost your first love for me. You're not passionate anymore like you used to be. Get back to that passionate place. Then last week we looked at the church at Smyrna. And the church at Smyrna was a, was a small church under great persecution. They were being slandered. They were being um, about to be martyred, some of them, and thrown into jail. This was a church that was really being picked on, being bullied by the people around them. And yet Jesus said they were a great church. They stayed true to their faith. They didn't deny Jesus. They stood in the midst of it. So we've been asking the question, Lord, what do we get out of these letters to these churches? Are we people that have lost our first love? Are we people that would stand true if... Um, in our nation of Australia, if Christians started to get persecuted, would we stand firm or would we give up because of the opposition that we might face? And so today we're looking at the letter to the church at Pergamum. And this was a church that compromised what they believed in. I don't know if you can remember back to when you were little enough to start learning to climb on monkey bars. There's probably a few of us here that have got broken arms as a result of failure of that. But when you learn to get onto the monkey bars, the first biggest hurdle you have to, to, to face is actually reaching that first bar, isn't it? Normally you've got to jump with two hands and grab hold of it. But the next thing's letting go with one hand and swinging out and grabbing that next rung. That's the really big thing, gaining enough momentum, letting go with one hand and grabbing hold with another. And what the church at Pergamum had done is with one hand they were holding on to Christ. They were standing firm, and yet with the other hand, they were compromising their beliefs and their behavior. And so what Jesus said to them was, this is not on. This is the worst type of church to be a model for Christianity because on one hand, you're claiming to be people that serve me and know me, and yet when people observe your behavior and your beliefs, they compromise 
And Jesus said, I'm going to come and I'm going to come swiftly if you don't fix it and I'm going to wipe this church out. So these are pretty strong words. Jesus wasn't mincing his words here. He was really um, upset about this church. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin, so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Like I said, if you are opening the mail, this is not the letter that you want to get. Let's let's go through and, and see why. The city of, of Pergamon was a very large city, very similar in culture and trade to the city of Ephesus and Smyrna, but this was on a much grander scale. This was a huge city, um, and, and, it, and it's situated on a cone-shaped hill, so they built three very large temples on this hill and it was sort of overpowering the sense of this city was all about religious worship pagan worship and it was the ancient capital of ancient this was the centerpiece of where people would come to but it was a pagan and occult stronghold we are talking the extreme here and we'll have a look at why because this was um, where they had the temple and the throne of zeus the god zeus who is the king of all the gods in the Greek culture. So this was why God said, this is where Satan is enthroned. That's pretty powerful language. For God to be, to say that Satan was enthroned at this particular city meant that he was at home there, he felt strong and at peace there, and he had a stranglehold on what was happening in that city. Jesus wasn't Lord of Pergamon, Satan was. And he had freedom and he had power and had authority in that place. And there was a cult in the city of Pergamum that was um, devoted to the serpent god Asclepius. And Asclepius was the god of healing. And in the city of Pergamum, right throughout the region of Asia Minor, if you were sick, if you had an ailment in your body, you would go to Pergamum. Because at Pergamum, they would have a, a ritual and rites where that you would go through and you would offer something to the gods and you would be healed. This is how the ceremony went. You would come into the city, you would go down through the tunnels underneath the city and you would come to where the priests of Asclepius ministered. And in that area was full of snakes. Some people would think that was great, most people wouldn't. But what you would do was overnight you would sleep in that dormitory with all the snakes and it was considered wonderful if a snake slithered over you during the night. And what the priests would do is that they would pray that while you were sleeping, God would reveal to you what your, not God, their God, Zeus, 
Asclepius, would reveal to you what your ailment was. And so in the morning you would come to the priest with your dream, you'd explain what your dream was, and the priest would say, okay, you have problems with your lungs or problems with your leg or whatever. And you would make a clay idol and you'd take it to the altar and you'd sacrifice whatever part of your body they believed was sick. You would you would offer something to the gods to appease them and to be well. Pagan in the ultimate. And it was a sinister place and it was known throughout all of Asia. So people would come, have these dreams, sleep with the snakes, ask for revelation of their dreams. It was so anti-God, it wasn't funny. It really was a, a horrible place. And so Jesus writes this this letter into this church in the middle of a pagan city where the throne of Satan is, where the God of all pagan gods is, is worshipped and sacrificed to. There's this little church that Jesus writes to, and he says, these are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. In every one of the seven letters to the churches, the first line is always something to do with Jesus. And most of the letters have something comforting in it. So he's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. But when Jesus writes this letter, he just goes straight in and he says, I'm the one who has the sharp, double-edged sword. Now, you've probably all seen a sword swallower. You know those guys, I don't know how they do it. I'd gag. But Jesus is a sword speaker not a sword swallower. And he's trying to make the point that in the midst of all the falsehood and the lies and the deceptions and this farce of religious practice that's happening in this town, Jesus is the truth and he only speaks the truth and his truth is to be reckoned with, to be listened to. You can't water down God's truth. And what happened in this church was that they compromised and compromised until they became very permissive of anything. And everything. And what we find is that you can't do that in the Christian life. There's an absolute truth. And we've got to be prepared to fight for that truth. And the enemy will do everything he can to water that truth down so that, yeah, Mark can believe whatever he wants to believe in. That's fine. And Russell can believe in whatever. That's good. We'll all just believe whatever we believe. But that's not the Christian faith. The Christian faith is exclusive. And we have to fight for that exclusive nature. It's not compatible with Islam. It's not compatible with Hinduism. It's not compatible with pagan worship. And in the midst of this city and this town and the Christian witness there, there was this falsehood happening. There was a fight on for the truth. So we know that God's word is living and active and it penetrates and it cuts even dividing soul and spirit. So when God speaks truth, you've got to sit up and take notice or you've got to live in denial of that truth. Now, most of this city was living in denial, but this little church, in some senses, did the right thing. They held on to Jesus. When Antipas, the first Christian martyr, was killed, they didn't abandon their faith. And God praised them for that, praised them for hanging on. And so we've got this sense of all this demonic activity happening in this town where anything goes and Jesus saying, no, my words are truth and absolute. There's this real contrast happening here. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, 
Not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. The way that they killed Antipas was that they had a huge altar, bronze altar that was in the shape of a bull. And they filled it up with water, they set a fire under it, and they put him in it, and they slowly roasted him till he died. Now imagine that being your pastor. I reckon a lot of people would run for the hills, hey? But they didn't. They stayed firm in their faith. Even though one of their their leading men was horribly tortured and martyred, they stayed true to the faith. And Jesus says, I know. I know what's going on in that town. I know Satan rules there. I know he's Lord over that town. But we've got to remember that that wherever Satan is, is not the ultimate power. Because Jesus was greater. And his strength for them and his ability to stain them was greater. You know, in the midst of a, of a, of a town where it was rampant paganism, you imagine the worst things happening in a culture being, being allowed to happen. That's what was happening here in this place. Now, the throne of Zeus was one of the seven wonders of the world. It's huge. It's, it's opulent. It's in your face. So right in the midst of this town was this huge throne, and you have to go up a number of stairs to get to this throne. And, and, and what happened was that the, um, the Germans took the throne brick by brick back to Berlin and rebuilt it in Berlin. It's still there today. You can go and see this throne. It's huge. And what it said was was a declaration from Satan really saying that I'm going to rule this town. Whatever Christian witness begins to rise up in this place, I'm going to crush it. And he tried to crush it through martyrdom, but it didn't work. In fact, the opposite happened. When Antipas was martyred, the church grew. So Satan decided that he'd employ another tactic to destroy this church. It was much more subtle, much more behind the scenes. He brought compromise, a slow but gentle compromise where the truth got watered down, the lines got blurred, and different things began to be believed. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Balak was an enemy of Israel and he wanted Balaam to curse the Israelite people and Balaam refused to curse them. But Balak kept nagging him and nagging him and nagging him. And what happened in the end was that Balaam said, look, if you want to defeat the Israelites, it's easy. Get your men to fall in love with the Midianite women and intermarry with them and then they're their religion will get watered down. They'll start to worship the other women's gods and they'll compromise on what is truth and what is right. And that's what happened. He gave them a strategy to defeat them, which was to get the men in their lustful minds to marry the Midianite women and they threw their pure religion out the window and they compromised. And as Jesus is looking at this church, he's saying there's compromise in the midst of, of my people. And he was pointing the finger at the Nicolaitans, those who supported the Nicolaitans. And the Nicolaitans, this is their form of Christianity. It's like 
we shouldn't get too puritanical. We shouldn't get too um, 100% for God. We should stay as close to the world as we can so that we can minister to these worldly people and we can save them. But the problem was the line between Christianity and the and the world got so blurred that it really was a free-for-all. And what happened was you could have sex out of marriage. You could have multiple partners. You could have all sorts of things happening and they were putting a Christian label on it and saying, this is okay. It's not okay in God's eyes. He was really angry because what was happening was, and we have we still have that today, don't we? Have you heard people say, oh, don't get too radical for God. You know, don't get too hard-nosed about the truth. You know, you Christian people, you're just so absolute about things, like you're so dogmatic about what you believe in. It's okay for people that are gay to get married. We can condone that in the church, can't we? You heard that lately? And the truth is subtly getting watered down. But God is saying, no, I have a truth that cannot be compromised. And that's what happened in this church. They blurred all the lines. Now, Satan's pretty smart. He tried martyrdom. He got the pastor and he had him killed, but that didn't wipe out Christianity. So he said, hmm, how do I get to these people? How do I undermine their faith? Let's just blur the lines a little bit. And slowly he eroded away what was absolute truth until you could believe whatever you wanted to believe. And they still called it Christian. That's really dangerous. You know something? Last week we looked at the church of Smyrna who was persecuted and it was a struggle for us to see ourselves in that church because we're not persecuted and we don't live under the suffering and the slander that they do. But when I look at this church, I could say, hmm, this is getting a little bit close to the Western church because when you look through our nation and what is Christianity today, boy, there's a big spectrum of what churches believe. You know, there's gay priests in a lot of churches today. And a lot of churches, if you stand up for the truth and say, no, God's word says that that's wrong, you're in for a fight with people who call themselves Christian. And yet I can get my Bible out and show you in black and white where God says it's not on. But if I'm the one who stands for the truth and says it's not on, boy, am I going to get picked on? Am I going to be the minority? Am I going to be the odd one out? Absolutely. And no one likes to be unpopular, hey? That's what happened in this church. They didn't want to speak out anymore because they decided that they'd be man-pleasers instead of God-pleasers. And that's a dangerous place to be in. We've got to decide that God's truth is absolute. Do we love homosexual people? Absolutely. Do we hate the sin? Yes. But we call a spade a spade. It's not Adam and Steve. It's Adam and Eve, and God had an order, and he had that order for a reason. And when that order gets broken down, society begins to decay. Go and look at our culture and our society. We are on the edge of going over. Why? Because we've watered down God's principles. We were once a Christian nation that held to certain ideals, and we put them in our constitution. These days, that doesn't apply much anymore. I went to court with Brad this week, and Brad had to swear on the Bible. And the lady said to him, oh, are you okay to do that? As if there's other options now. 
And I felt like standing up and saying, well, I could preach the Bible to you. You probably don't know what's in it. But it, it was strange to me that she was going to give him another option. He could have sworn on another Bible, on Islam or something. But it, it's slowly and subtly getting eroded. Getting eroded. And that's what happened to this church. This is what Jesus said. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you. Soon come. I'm coming in a hurry if you don't fix this up. And I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Now, this church was persecuted by the Romans. It was persecuted by the Jews. It was persecuted by everybody. And they were fighting their whole society. But the one fight they didn't want to have was with Jesus. And he's declaring that he's going to come and fight against this church. And they're fierce words. They're really fierce words from Jesus. And I think we need to ask why. And I think because a compromised church is the worst example, isn't it? Because you say that you're Christian on one hand, and yet when people look at your behavior and your belief system, it's counter-contrary to the character and the nature of God. It's offensive to God. It's actually embarrassing to God that people would call themselves the church of God, and yet when people looked at what they were doing, they just found that there was no difference between them and the world, really. What was the difference? There wasn't one. And I think sometimes what we do is we look back at our our ancestors and the people that, that have pioneered our faith and we go, oh, gee, they were a bit square, weren't they? You know, they only sung hymns and, gee, they didn't let a lot of things happen that we let happen today. But I tell you what, you knew what the church was and you knew what the world was. You go to a lot of churches today and everyone's happy, clappy, happy, willing to raise their arms, jump around. I tell you, persecution came. I wonder how many would stay. I wonder how many even know what the truth is to hold on to it. And that's the fight. We've got to fight not just for ourselves, but for the generations of kids that we're raising. We've got to teach them what God's truth is so they know when it gets compromised and they can stand true and firm on it and it will never be popular. You know, I, we could have a really popular church. We could hand out Mars bars when people came in. We could make people feel really warm and wonderful. We could preach a, a, a doctrine that was really inspirational and we could pat people on the back every week and just say, go hard for God. And, and we could create this really prosperous doctrine that just on the surface level sounded so wonderful, but it has no truth. It has no roots to it. And it has no integrity to it. And that's the challenge for the church of today. I reckon Jesus would write us a letter just like this. Maybe not accusing us of compromise, but warning us against compromise. Because the day that we let untruth and falsehood begin to reign in the church, we're on a slippery dip out. And I don't want to get a letter like this. Ephesus lost their love. Smyrna was suffering and stayed true. But Pergamon was not separated from the world anymore. It was almost the same. And that was the scary part that a church could be like that. And if we're going to be a church that shines light into dark places, there's going to be things that our families, our friends, our society will say is okay to do. But we're going to have to say, no, it's not. It's not okay. It's not okay to be a swinger. Marriage 
is sacred. It's not okay to abuse your body with substances. God's got a perfect plan. It's not okay to do this. It's not okay to do that. We've got to raise up a standard and sustain that standard. And in saying that, I know it's not ever going to be popular in this culture. We will always be the odd ones out. And the more that we speak out, the more that we will get what? Ostracized. We will. Ever heard of a guy called Fred Nile? Boy, do they pay him out, that guy. They give him curry for what he stands up for. Now, he's old-fashioned. He's a fuddy-duddy. But he stands for the truth. And at the end of the day, what's Jesus going to say? Well, he didn't wear pointy shoes. He wasn't a slick-looking fella. Is he going? Jesus going to condemn him for that? No. He stood for the truth. And the truth will never be popular. And that's what Jesus was saying to this church. We've got to stay straight in a crooked world. We've got to stay clean in a dirty world. We've got to stay Christian in a pagan world. Now, the last part of this passage is, is really very interesting. I will also give that person who stays victorious some hidden manna and a white stone with a name written on it. Now, when you read up on those two statements, no one really knows what it means. There's no one one perfect statement that you could say, this is what hidden manna means and this is what a stone with a new name written on it means. But if we look back at the manna in the Old Testament, it was sent from God from heaven to sustain the Israelite people. And I think Jesus knew when this church read this letter, they were going to start to think to themselves, boy, if we're going to be Christian, if we're going to be righteous, if we're going to be true, if we're going to be steadfast in standing for God, then we're going to have to let go of a lot of the worldly things that the world says is good and popular. And I think part of them was going, boy, if we give all this stuff up, we've got nothing left. It's like, why would... We're going to give away all the good things. And I think Jesus was saying, no, that's worldly thinking because I will sustain you. I will give you manna from heaven that will fill that void. When you say no to the world's ways, when you say no to getting drunk and no to getting partying and no to sleeping around, that the world says, oh, that's all the good stuff. God says, no, that's not my truth. And if you give that stuff up, I'll give you treasures from heaven that you don't even know about. They'll sustain you. They'll fill you up. They'll give you a sense of completeness and wholeness. That was like God was saying, I'll give it to you when you make the stand. (laughs) You'll know. Now, the stone was often used in ancient times. A white stone was often given to people when they went to court and they were vindicated. They would be given a white stone. Or it was often used um, in a jury situation. The jury would hear the trial, and then they would either place a black stone or a white stone. A black stone meant that the juror thought that you were guilty or the white stone thought that the juror thought that you were innocent. So if you take either of those two meanings, it could apply for this situation. That God was saying, I'm going to give you a white stone if you stand for the truth. I'm going to declare you innocent when this society says that you're guilty. It's a beautiful thing for these guys to hang on to. When I read that letter this week and I meditated on it, the only thing I could think of was that these people were either going to be man-pleasers or they were going to be God-pleasers. They were really at a crossroads of deciding, do I fear God 
more than I fear my society? Do I fear God more than I fear what my parents or my family or even my wife or husband might say? Like, am I going to stick a stake in the ground and say, God, I fear you and your truth more than what my society says because I can see the pendulum swinging against us. And as the years go on, more and more the Christian church is going to be outside what society says is popular. And every time we speak up, we're going to start to get pelted with stones and they're going to start to make laws against Christian freedom and liberty. It's already happening. It's happening in the chaplaincy in the schools. You can't be a chaplain and share anything Christian anymore. You can't pray for kids in schools anymore. People don't want religious education in the schools anymore, only if you teach them Hinduism and Buddhism and Islam. And so there's this 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 freedom of religion. But Christianity is not, not like that. It's exclusive. It is hard-nosed. It is an absolute truth. And Jesus was saying, don't be a church that waters the truth down. Don't be a church that gets wishy-washy about what's right and what's wrong. Stay the course. Stay to the truth. Not an easy letter to receive, hey? I bet you there was a lot of uh, murmurings and a lot of little groups happening around the church, people figuring out, what do we do now? What do we do now? If, if we repent, if we um, if we say, sorry, Lord, if we, we ask those people that believe what the Nicolaitans believe to get out of the church or to change what they believe, we might lose some people. We might not be a church of 500 anymore. We might lose 250 people. You're going to be a God pleaser? Or are you going to be a man pleaser? <laughs> they were really wrestling with some heavy stuff here because they'd allowed some stuff to come in that should never have been there. And I think this is probably much more a letter for the Church of Australia today. It's really going to be some of the stuff that we're going to have to wrestle with, even now. It's happening. But more and more, I think you're going to find that as, a, as, as Christians, we're going to have to separate from the world. Now, I was raised in a church where being separate meant you were totally separate. Like you never rub shoulders with Christian people, only to go and Bible bash them. You know, to knock on their door and tell them they were sinners. I don't think that's what Jesus meant. But what this church did was blurred the church and the world so much that you just couldn't tell the difference anymore. There was no difference. And we've got to find that fine line between being the church of the living God that's built upon the foundations of the apostles and the prophets and the truth of God that's been handed down from generation to generation And we cannot compromise what's in here whether we like it or not. It's not about what I like. It's not a smorgasbord where you can say, well, this whole whole, whole homosexual stuff thing, it's just so hard to work out what's black and white. It just seems all grey, so anything goes. No. We've got to make a stand on the truth. We've got to make a stand for marriage because it's been eroded away. We've got to make a stand for family. Doesn't mean we don't love people. Doesn't mean we don't go to the ends of the earth to teach people but the truth. But let's face it, when we come here every week and we open this word of God, we're asking God to challenge us. We're asking him to change us. We're coming in here every week, setting ourselves up 
To either be people that go, God, please change me if there's something to be changed. Search me, know me if there's any wicked way in me. Change it. And if we've got that hard attitude, then coming to church is great. Reading God's word is wonderful. But if we don't want to be changed, then coming here into church every week's sort of like asking for a punch in the nose, <laughs> really, isn't it? Because God's word is sharp. It's two-edged. It wants to cut right into the place where there's darkness, where there's falsehood, where there's compromise, and bring absolute truth. And the world doesn't want absolute truth. The world doesn't want to know what the truth is because if the world knows what the truth is, they're confronted with the fact that there is an all-powerful God that has a righteous standard and you have to submit to that standard. Not a popular message. But you know what? That's the message of the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, Satan's not going to bring machine gun army men in here and have me killed and my family killed. He's going to bring compromise. He's going to bring people that want to say, Mark, you know what you're talking about? It's just so, it's too full on for me. Can't cope with the truth. Let, let's just change it a little bit, can we? Just take the shade out and make it a little bit more palatable for people so I can bring my non Christian friends to church. Let's have a seeker-sensitive church so we don't hurt anybody's feelings and let's make it all just... You can't do that with God's Word. You can't water it down. You might be able to present it in different ways. Yes, I understand that. But you can't make truth untruth. You can't make something that God has said is this way, that way, and come out the other side of it and God say, Oh, well done. Well done. I'm glad you changed that. It would have been nice if you consulted with me. Do you understand what I'm saying? This is a this is just a, a really hard letter to read because of what it says to you and I is, are we prepared to stand for truth? Are we prepared to be a church that doesn't compromise our message? A sad story to finish up with. I won't name the church. A pastor came to a church and he said when they called him, I have a ministry with reaching out to homosexual people and bringing them to Christ. Are you okay with that as a leadership? Because part of what will happen is that homosexual people will come, gay and lesbian people will come into the church. Are you comfortable with that? Are you okay with that? Oh, we're fine with that. That would be really good. We'll reach out to them and, you know, that would be great. So he started his ministry. And he was true to his word. He had this ministry reaching out to homosexual people. You know what happened? In the space of 18 months, more homosexual people started coming to the church than there were Christians because of his ministry. Did he compromise God's word? No, he did not. He was straight down the line. This is God's truth. And these people would come. At the end of the day, the leadership went to him and just said, we can't cope with this anymore. We want you to go. We can't cope with the number of homosexuals. It's making us feel uncomfortable. And it put this church at loggerheads with one another. And eventually he had to leave because it was just an untenable situation. I find that so sad. So sad that firstly, a guy who had a heart for people that really needed to hear the truth and know the truth were willing to come into a church for a start. It was amazing. 
because of the relationship that he had with him. But then the people in the church drove them out, ostracized them, didn't know how to relate to them, couldn't relate to them, were fearful of them. You know, the truth is the truth, and, and we speak the truth in love. That's the key. For many years, the church has spoken the truth out of hatred, out of, you know, being a, a bigot, being, being a critic. We're just speaking the truth out of love. There's a difference. It's the difference that it can be received differently. No one likes someone banging them on the front door saying, you're a sinner, you're going to hell. That is the truth, but it's done in love and it's done through relationship. And that's why it's so important as a church that we learn to love our society and our community, that we build bridges to people and not condemn them, but we love them into the kingdom. Does that mean we compromise the truth? Never. The truth is absolute, but the truth will set you free. Not lies, not falsehood, not a watered-down gospel, not a seeker-sensitive service. The truth will set you free. Because truth is freedom. When you live within the confines of God's truth, there is freedom. There's freedom in your marriage. There's freedom in your family. There's freedom in the church because we're all doing what honors God. And when we're all honoring God, there's a payoff for that. We have happy lives. Go and look at people in society. They're not happy. Why? Because they're compromising God's standard. And we've got to raise up a voice of truth. And it will never be popular in this nation. So there's a warning I think God was saying. Stand for the truth. Don't compromise the truth, but don't expect to be loved for it. Don't expect society to say, oh, Catalyst Church down the road there. We love them. They'll probably hate us for what we stand for. But at the end of the day, I'm not looking for what the council at Cadinia say was popular. I'm not looking for what Officer Primary School say is popular. I'm looking for what our God and our King says is popular, what he says is truth. I don't want Catalyst to get a letter like that. I don't want to be a compromising church. We want to be a church of integrity and truth. Let's pray. Father, what a challenging letter. Lord, I just... I can imagine that many people getting that letter were just so confused, not knowing what to do next, how to clean up the church and make it pure and holy and righteous again. And Lord, it's, it's, a, it's a timely message, Father, for us to ask, are we a church that preaches truth, that's uncompromising? I think back to Keith Green and was like a modern-day prophet. He used to just be so hard-nosed about the Christian faith and so uncompromising. Father, we need to be like that. We need to have a passion that burns within us for the truth. Because as we speak the truth and live the truth and model the truth and, and proclaim the truth, the message will spread and people will come under the banner of truth and they'll be set free. They'll experience the fullness of what you want for them. Lord, there won't be any grey areas that we can get ourselves into trouble with will just be pure and righteous in your sight. And Father, that's a wrestle that we're all going to have to go through in our individual lives, but also as a church. Lord, help us to be a church that never gets off the track doctrinally, that never gets off the track theologically, that stays the course of your truth. 
whether it's popular or not. Lord, at the end of the day, we want to be a church that you say, well done, good and faithful servants. You held fast with both hands. You didn't let go with one hand and have one hand in the world and one hand in the church. You weren't living like this six days a week and then living like a holy roller on a Sunday. What I saw you do Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday and Sunday was the same. You loved me. You loved my ways and my purposes. You sought after my heart and you stayed true. Father, help us individually and corporately to be a church like that. Lord, it's a, it's a really heavy word to read that letter to Pergamon. Father, help us today as we set our sights on the road to Christmas, not to grow weary in doing good, not to lag behind and get tired of pressing forward, Lord, it's like the tide set against us in this nation. But it's time to pray. It's time to declare the truth. It's time to rise up. It's time to be that light in a dark place in your work. Dark, dark places in schools now need a bright, shining light of young people who stand with integrity for God's truth. Father, would you help us today not to blur the lines, not to be wishy-washy, not to contaminate our faith, but to rest our lives on you, the cornerstone. You're the one that we need to anchor to. You're the one that who, whose word is righteous and will cut through all the mess right to our hearts, convict and challenge and confirm. Father, I want to pray for this nation of ours. Seems like Satan has his throne there. Seems like he's free to assault this society, to destroy marriages, to tear down Christian principles right across the political scene and schools and education. Lord, it just seems like we're on the way out. And anything goes is on the way in. Lord, help us to fight that battle. Help us to stand against that, to hold fast to you. Whenever we get an opportunity, Lord, to speak the truth in love. Not to be ashamed of the gospel. Because it's the power of God unto salvation. Lord, may people see us and see an uncompromising passionate group of people, people that have their first love overflowing, people that have a steadfastness about them when they're persecuted and in the minority, but Lord, also a, a church that's uncompromising with our doctrine and our truth. Lord, we can learn so much from these letters and yet they're not sweet-smelling roses, Lord. They're hard to digest. They're, they, in a sense, they assault us. But Lord, we thank you that your truth is there for a purpose and a reason, to draw us close to you. Lord, I praise you that you're a God who's got the courage to call us out when we're compromising. Father, today, maybe it's an opportunity for us just to, to say no to some things that we've been mixed up in.
sort of blurred the lines between my church life and my worldly life. Lord, there's no middle ground. You can't sit on the fence. All to Jesus I surrender. We don't handle, we don't taste, and we don't touch the things of this world anymore. But we walk in purity and your truth. Father, would you help us to do that this week and in the weeks ahead? Help us to meditate on this letter and take out of it what's for us personally and for us as a church. Lord, we give you honour and praise today for the God that you are. Praise you, Lord, that your truth has stood the test of time. There's always a remnant that stay faithful. There's always those that will say no to the world and popularity and will stay close to you. Lord, help us to be those that are counted among the faithful, that receive the manna from heaven, that receive that white stone because we're victorious in you. Lord, help us to stay strong in the spirit of the living God, I pray. In Jesus' name. Do you know, 20 years ago, the light of Jesus came into my life. And um, during that time, my life was transformed amazingly. And I was following after the Lord and I was loving him with all my heart and all my being. But at the same time, Mark was still on his journey of coming back to the Father. So all through that time, he one of these compromising Christians that was neither in the world but was neither with the Lord either. And I was one that wanted to run with the Lord. I wanted, to, I wanted everything of God, but it was difficult. And so after a few years, got to that point where it was like, am I going to compromise because my husband wasn't really at that place where I was. Was I going to compromise or was I going to go forward? And it was a very difficult place to be at. But at that time, it was when I had to really trust in the Lord and I had to really put my hope in him, knowing that and believing that Mark was going to come back to him. And it was through that. It was through me standing it was through me hoping and persevering and believing. That's what eventually he came back to the Lord. And I often wonder if I hadn't have done that, if I had have just compromised my, my God for my partner, what would have happened? Where would we be today? Where would our life be today? So I just want to encourage each and every one of you We've all got stuff around us. We've all got people around us, whether they're family, friends, work people, whatever, who, without realising, try to have us compromise our ways of the Lord. And I just want to say, stand firm. Stand firm for Jesus because he will come through for those people around you.